enough administrative stuff. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, this, uh, this, sorry, this is like not a smooth transition, hard transition into the sermon. A few weeks ago, I, maybe you were a part of this uh, fun experience, but um, a few weeks ago, uh, the Sprint carrier was taken over by T-Mobile. Anyone else? Does anyone, if you're aware of this, then you know what I'm about to say. The quality of my cell phone service dramatically nosedived. Now, if you work for T-Mobile, I'm sorry. This is not going to look good on your behalf. I could not even send a text message from Common Ground Northeast, let alone get a call out. I could barely get any better service over at my house, but it was so bad. And I'm like, man, I don't want to go through all the hassle of switching things. We then, you know, we have AT&T at home with our um, service. So let me get on the phone, call up AT&T and find out what it's going to take to switch carriers from what is now T-Mobile into AT&T. Now, what starts off as a quick, fun intro, 20 minute, hey, what's it going to take? What can you give me? Do you have any incentives? Maybe, maybe not. I'm like an hour and a half into this situation wondering where my life has gone. And that's not even over. Like we're, we're in the middle. I've been transferred back and forth to different departments, put on hold more times than I could count or remember. How many times like, hey, can you hold? Like I don't have a choice, right? <laughs> Why are you asking me that question? Just to be polite, I can't do anything but hold right now. Over and over, you get that same ringtone. I tried to get a clip for you this morning just so you could enter oh. into that. Uh, precious moment with me, but I decided to spare you from that multiple times. I just wanted this whole thing to end. And even though I realized we are still a far, we are far away from the actual ending, I had given up too much at this point to end the call. I, there was too much invested, right? If, if you ever played cards in your life, I was po- obligated at this point they had my info, they had one of the two phones we were trying to transfer, they had my credit card, I was trapped, right? There was no going back, and this is like, their phrase that's common for this is that I had passed the point of no return, and all I could do is hope that the ending was sooner than it all began, right? Just get this whole ordeal done. But once you're past that point of no return, there's just no going back. You got you to get through it. You have to hunker down. Once you realize that you're there, you just kind of move with it. You try to keep everything on quick recall. All of the questions they asked me, all the info they asked for, I started copying and pasting into a document so that when they asked me three, four, five, six, ten, twelve, twenty 10, 12, 20 different times, I could repeat that stuff back to them. And I got through it. All right? I am now an AT&T customer. Now, this isn't a full sale. You're on trial right now, AT&T. I don't know how this is all going to work out. I get that that's like kind of a silly, but I'm sure some of you can relate to having gone through that experience. In fact, I'm pretty sure there's someone on staff in the same situation avoiding doing it because they don't want to have to go through all of that, right? So I'm just going to put up with the bad cell phone service. Now, it's it's like silly. It's frustrating. It gave up some time. If I really asked myself the question, though, it didn't require that much from me, right? It was painless compared to what other people might go through. But I think we've been in places like that in other situations, right? Have you ever been in that past the point of no return moment? Like you're making a decision, you realize, man, we've waited this out too long and we're going to just have to kind of keep moving forward. Maybe you have a place that you're traveling, a destination, and you get past that midpoint and you realize that if something goes wrong, it's probably easier for me to get to the destination and deal with it than to go back home and deal with it. If you have some kind of training you're doing, an initiative maybe that you're doing for your job, there's this point 
where maybe you realize that things were going to be more difficult than you realize. Maybe it gets overwhelming. It requires you to fight because there were enemies along the way that you didn't realize were going to be present. And then once you realize that it takes you uh, more from you to finish, sorry, that that's going to take more from you to finish than you originally thought it would, but you realize you can't go back, you have a decision to make, right? Once you've crossed that point, and here is the, kind of the twist I want you to maybe embrace. Once you get there and you switch gears, you start to focus in. You start to realize that maybe I need to turn some things up, that I need to raise the level of the heat, maybe that I need to accelerate the speed at which I'm going, make a greater effort to get to the other side of that finish line, whatever endeavor this thing is. And, and here's what happens, right? In this way, you realize that actually crossing the point of no return was a blessing because it removed the option of retreat. And so you might as well just buckle down, do whatever needs to happen to get through to the finish line. And I think this applies at times to your faith walk. I think it's possible that this, this can hit home in so many different ways. A milestone maybe in what you're trying to accomplish. We make all kinds of New Year's resolutions during this time of year. My hope is maybe that you've included some sort of spiritual resolution, milestone, or goal. But sometimes you put out a goal that's harder or more difficult than you thought. And so you step out into that milestone and you're going to need God's strength to help you get to the end. You step out into a calling or a divine appointment that you believe God has put on you. And the good thing is that there is lots of moments in scripture where we see people deal with this. So I'm just going to pick one. I want you to turn to Exodus 13. We're going to start in verse 17. It's a pretty significant chunk of scripture, but it's a narrative, so I think we'll be able to get through it pretty easily. Um, and what I want you to ask yourself is this. How are the Hebrews going to handle their shift in the journey as they exit Egypt? And so just so you know, what, what we've walked through already in Exodus is that there are multiple confrontations. Moses has done, gone out into the desert, come back in, let my people go, dealt with that multiple times. Then there's plagues, 10 plagues to be exact that have happened, which are not just uh, punishment being rained down on the people of Egypt. It is actually a moment for Pharaoh to stop and say, I bow the knee, I surrender to, I recognize the authority of this God that they call Yahweh, and 10 times he denies it. And then in Exodus 13, 17, this is what it says. It says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. Now, catch that the, the author is, is, it's like a wink, wink, nod, nod, right? Like, pay attention. I'm trying to communicate something here between the lines here. And you ask, well, why would God do that? We're trying to escape a thing. There's bad guys behind us. There's, there, there's a situation we are trying to remove ourselves from. Why would we not go the quickest, most efficient, fastest route possible? And the author is going to actually directly answer that. And it says this. For God said, in some uh, translations it said God thought, which is an interesting phrasing. So for God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. So in this really rare occasion, we get to know what God says or thinks. We get to not just obey due to direct obedience, although they possibly did, depending on what Moses was willing to share with them. 
we actually get to know, so what's the logic behind the thing that God just told us to do? And this is what we learn. God knows his people. God knows people in general, but just especially his own people. He knows that they can get a little scared when the opposition arrives, when they realize that they're going to have to fight. He knows that they'll second guess him at times. God knows that they will change their minds and want to go back, but God also knows himself. God also knows that he is a strategic God in making things work out for their good and for his glory. And so here, just for context, I want you to see the map here um, of this little situation. So what happens is up in the top left corner, you have uh, the, the land of Goshen, you see Memphis, everyone kind of see that Heliopolis um, over to the top left. This is the area that they're starting in. And what you see at the very top is that dotted kind of line toward the land of the Philistines. That's the quick route. Like just straight, go left to right, right? I'm trying to think, never eat soggy worms. Go west to east. <laughs> But he says, no, go down. You see the red line, down, down to Migdal, down. And then I want you to stop. Now, if you see, that's kind of like a trap. Do you see the shape of where they stop on the left side of the Red Sea? And so this is what's going to happen in this occasion. We see that God is strategic, but I want us to say for the record, just so that we read ourselves into this a little bit, we should know that if we were in their situation, we would be asking the same things that they're asking. We are subject to thinking, wait a minute, I have to fight this out? We are subject to thinking, uh, I don't know, God, did you really say what you said you said? Uh, you know, God, did, did, I, I might change my mind and go back. And God knows that that's the way his people are. And we also are the kind of people who want to go to God and say, oh, wait, maybe you haven't ran this route before, Yahweh. You see, I've been on these hills in the fastest. In fact, let me draw you a map so you can get to where we're trying to go to because if you maybe didn't realize that the shortest way is that top line, and we'll just go the quick one. We'll get out of the way of these Egyptians and not have to think about them ever again. In fact, if you would have just consulted me, I could have told you that a little earlier, but you got Moses. You and Moses can go do your thing up there, and then when he comes down, let me know. All of us are really quick to claim that we are the experts in the affairs of God, Right? But God knows that we do this. And it says, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. Now there's this brief aside about Joseph in verse 19, and then it comes back on track. It says this, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid. And then you must carry my bones up with you from that place. And it gets kind of back on track. So we got the bones of Joseph, right? Good, good, good job, they listened. Then in verse 20, after leaving Sukkot, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. And by the day, the Lord went ahead of them on their way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or by night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. And so God is making some things clear. I can supernaturally guide you. I can supernaturally protect you, right? But I can also supernaturally remind you that I never leave or forsake you. All right, that's gonna come into a, a broader form of presence in, in the tabernacle later on. But right now, he knows, they know that the presence of God is in their midst, guiding, protecting there, all right? Verse 14 then says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back. 
hold up, that, wasn't, that wouldn't be my plan. Turn back where? What are you, what are you talking about? Encamp near Pi Hasheroth, between Migdal and the sea, they are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite of Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think, now check this out. Here's the strategic mind of Yahweh. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are just wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. All right, don't get caught up in the whole who hardened Pharaoh's heart, God, or this. That's a discussion for a different time, not for today, so stay focused on the story, but I know some of you went there right away. All right, that's a fun conversation around a fire pit at some time, I'm sure, uh, but not for this morning. This is what the NIV application Bible says about this, and I loved it. Knowing all of this, right, like think of all the variables. He knows the tendencies of Pharaoh. He knows the tendency of his people. He knows what he's trying to do. He knows the end game. He doesn't know if they will trust him to get to the end game. All of these things, God changed course and led the Israelites in the exact opposite direction. He took them south, away from Canaan, into the wilderness. It was, listen to this, not the most obvious way. It was not the shortest way. It was not the most direct way, but it was the best way because it was God's way. Even though if you're on the road, we're like questioning, like, God, this is, what are you doing right now? We, that was the turnoff to go directly out. What are you doing right now? And now you got us moving around in circles? We've got a plan. And so it says this at the end, God knew what his people could handle, and he knew that they needed to take the long way home. Now let me stop real quick. Have any of you found yourself on the long way home? Trying to get back, trying to be obedient, but realizing, man, I took a long route to get here. Maybe it wasn't always just by God's guidance, though it could have been. Maybe it was because of your decisions and the things you did that brought you on the long way home. And maybe you know you're supposed to go home, but it's longer than you thought it would be. And so here's a call to lean in and trust more. We recognize that God is the master strategist. He is in this situation intentionally placing this group in what? A point of no return. What are you going to do at this point? They're going to have some suggestions. We're going to read those. They got ideas of what they should do next. By doing it God's way, he's doing, he is accomplishing so much more than we could have tried to do. He's testing his people, he's enacting justice, and he's revealing his power. So let me, let me kind of go through each of those. He is testing his people. Remember, this isn't like pass-fail, like tests when you were in grade school. This is a, uh, hey, so, so you have learned some things. I have brought you into a way of life, and now I want to see if you internalize that. So it's not pass or fail. It's like, can you live up to the things that I've been bringing you through? And by the way, you've been under the tutelage of Egypt for a really long time. And so have you embraced more of the empire of this Egyptian rule than you have embraced of what I have been trying to bring you under? And so they're testing. They're being tested. He's trying to find out, are you more like Egypt or are you more like the people that I have called you to be, the Hebrews? He is testing his people. He is also enacting justice. Once again, we see Pharaoh who represents more than just the king of Egypt at this time. He represents an entire empire, 
a way of the world that is different than the way that God wants his people to live. He represents that, the, uh, that, that he is in this high position. There's a really cool study, if you ever wanted to, that, that shows you the difference between Moses' staff and the staff of Pharaoh that has a snake head over the top. One represents power. One represents trust in God. One represents uh, a hierarchical, oppressive authority. One represents just trust me, I love you, I'll provide for you. It's a totally uh, powerful symbolism that's going on. So whenever Moses raises his staff, it means more than just raising his staff. It is contrasting these two worlds. And so the Hebrews are in this weak position. And uh, so here, here's a, kind of a principle I'm just going to sneak in here, um, though it's not the point of today's sermon. I think it's always worth locating yourself in power dynamics because if you try to empower marginalized people, what you do is you bring them out of the fringes and into emancipation. If you try to empower majority people, it usually makes them bullies and abusers. Did you hear that? And so it is really helpful for us to identify who am I in this story? And if you never considered you might be the Egyptians, you need to go back and reread Exodus. Put yourself in that position and ask yourself if there's something to be learned there. It's important to place yourself because if you don't do it correctly, you can actually make a lot of errors and mistakes. The language of Exodus can be used to feel your own agenda, right? Let me give you an example on the anniversary of January 6th who directly used the language of Exodus to empower themselves, to write off and allow themselves the ability to enact and energize an insurrection. Do you see what happens there? So if you haven't read this and considered, wait, am I, am I a pharaoh or an Egyptian at times? please do yourself the favor and go back and look at that. We always want to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, but where have you maybe flipped these power structures and you need to re-look at it? Now let, let's finish this. I'm going to do this next chunk in one reading um, for the most part. Finish up verse five. Uh, it says this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he and his chariot made, were made ready and took his army with him. I don't, this is such a weird wording. He took 600 of his best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt. If you put the math, he just like brought all the chariots, right? I guess, I mean, the best ones are there too. So are the others. They're all, all the chariots. Get the chariots. Prepare them. We're chasing after them, all right? Then they had officers over all of them. Uh, so I guess maybe what we should see is this is an organized effort. Right? Pharaoh is going to organize um, in his system a way in which he is going to either get them back or probably end them. Right? Verse 8 says, The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, there it is, that's what I needed, all the horsemen, all the troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near pi ha opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. Feel the pressure of this moment. We could have had the rescue without that pressure, but God is the strategist, right? 
So he allows the pressure to be turned up even more. And there, sorry, I'm going to start at 10. And as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, here's, here's the complaint. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out into the desert to die? Who, who's like the sarcastic guy in this? Like, I want to know who that guy's name is, who is just ready and willing to clap back on Moses like that, right? Like, like there weren't enough graves that you had to, there's more sand out here, I guess. That's what's happening. What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, catch this, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Now this is, this is the epitome of being past the point of no return. This is the epitome of humanity revealing itself for what it is and how quickly we will remove ourselves. This is the epitome um, of, of, of God trying to make sure that we can trust him for ultimate uh, uh, liberation. You can't go back to where you came from because God brought you out past the point of no return. Who knows what Pharaoh would do to you now anyways? And so what happens next? So, so you caught yourself. You have a choice. I can either succumb to the pressure of the situation I'm in. I mean, that's pressure. There's, there's an army with all the chariots, apparently, looking down on you. It makes sense just to, like, curl up and I'm going to bed. Like, it's, it's ultimate. I'm, I'm just going to bed right now. This is all over. Wake me up when I'm on the other side. And so this is what happens. There are two appeals that are about to happen, one from Moses himself and one from God, trying to get them to move into what's next. Verse 13 says, and he, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord will, what the, sorry, the deliverance that the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. You, the Lord will fight for you, you only need to be still. So that's Moses. Don't be afraid, keep going, push past it. Then in verse 15, then the Lord said to Moses, this is God to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Your staff and stretch, uh, uh, sorry, Ooh. raise your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through, on, uh, through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the heart of Pharaoh, uh, sorry, of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through the chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the odd thing is Pharaoh could have given God glory of his own volition if he had wanted to early on. But now this is where we're at. So hear this. Uh, Moses, stick to the plan. God to Moses so that he can tell the people, don't give up. Coming back unto it's like, no, to double down, let's... Let's, let's recognize that the point of no return is a gift from God that we get to say, oh, there is now no longer the option to retreat. We just got to stick to what Yahweh, the God our Lord, has told us to do. There's no going back. It's time to turn it up. It's time to turn up the courage. It's time to turn up the faith and press in. Let that option die because what's in front of us is what God has told us to do and we aren't stopping until we do that. So let's move faster, harder, stronger. Move in this direction. And so the two moments that I want you to really see inside of today's text, what I want you to embrace, and this is like the application, right? Understand that the point of no return can be a gift from God. 
And sometimes he strategically puts you in a position of no return so that you can't have the option to retreat and you have to learn to increase your faith and trust in him. He understands you more than you realize. He understands all humanity, but if you've chosen to be his, he understands his people so well that he can lead and guide them. He has put sometimes us into a position of no return because he's taking away the other options, but once you get there, you have to decide to go in and be involved and to turn it up on your own. So Common Ground Northeast, here, here is um, some things we have decided are, some callings that we're embracing. We have a set of values to be common ground. We've taught through those things. We kind of teach them through our discipleship process. It's, um, it's there, common ground. We want to be common ground. We're not denominationally specific. We're denominationally inclusive. And so what we try to do is find that middle ground and be common ground. So if you've been here from a, a Pentecostal background or a Catholic service, um, if you've had mostly a black church experience, if you've had mostly a, not, a, a, a white church experience through your upbringing, our hope is you're going to at times get your preferences and other times you're going to have to put those aside so that we can be common ground together. All right? We have chosen to be empowers, that we believe in the priesthood of all believers, not just a select few, but that we want to empower the priesthood and those who are marginalized. We have embraced this idea that we are going to be courageous, and when there's conversations and situations that other people back out of, we say, not us, we're going to go into that. We're going to step into those conversations. And we have this value to seek justice. We've been asked to participate in these things, to be involved in the emancipation movement of God in this day, inside of this country. And so here is our call to increase to turn it up, to uh, step further into the faith, to actually look more at our own cultural awareness, to evaluate ourselves and find out how well are we actually doing, how are we engaging in cultural negotiations so that we know what can be set aside, what needs to be kept, what we need to embrace and learn from the kaleidoscope of God's people. And how do we learn to further uh, decenter whatever majority status is taking over at, at given times. We want to continue to be cautious not to pace ourselves at the comfortability of whiteness. <laughs> That's the default, right? We can only do this as quickly as I feel comfortable. We're going to tread water there for too long. So I'm going to end with, um, with a story and maybe four possibilities, I think, of encouragement here. Um, and our last church, many of you know, but some don't, um, we left because we couldn't have conversations like this. And we tried to stick around and make the change. And I was slotted to be the, the person who took over when the pastor retired. Um, and then there are some things that took place around the election uh, in 2016 first. And then um, some things that we started to pay attention to. Things people would say, racialized jokes that people would engage in. And as we started to uh, confront those um, there was some pushback. And, um, you know, kind of like the prove it mentality, well, here, I'll give you a list of 35 things that I have noticed just in the last few months that we think are problematic that we need to deal with. So we're engaging in these conversations. There were pressurized moments where I'm having direct confrontations at one point um, because I was, uh, at least in this moment, stirring some, uh, the pot enough that the head elder said, you need to let him go <laughs> or else I'm leaving. That eventually led with him getting really upset in an elders meeting and just leaving. Um, 
I was in a conversation with that same person red in the face wherein I thought to myself, if he tries to physically attack me, what am I gonna do in this moment? So this is pressurized moments. That's, that's my point. I'm not, I just want you to see where the pressure built. Jobs are on the line. Things are happening. And as this is taking place, we, we figure out, okay, we're gonna just go ahead and exit and try to figure out what God wants for us next. Before we leave, like a week before we came to Common Ground, to Indianapolis to move, maybe two weeks. One of my best friends is an older gentleman who is now an elder um, in that spot. Close buddy, was there for some of this stuff, kind of partnered with me in a good bit of it, helped me bring some discipleship programming there. Just uh, like, like yoked, we were yoked together. And he says, hey, can I get lunch with you before you leave? Yeah, man, I would love to talk to you. So we sit down and we have, uh, we're, we're, we're having this conversation, it starts light, and then he starts asking me and prodding for more questions um, you know, about the situation all ending in this kind of pivotal moment where he says, hey, is there anything that you learned from all of this? That's fair enough. He's mentored me. I, I love this guy. He, he loves me. I said, yeah, um, I wish that I would have confronted this person, this person, this person sooner because I let time pass and it caused more problems. I wish that I had gone directly in this situation and just spoke to this person instead of waiting to see how it would play out. I wish I had started confronting people quicker, sooner, earlier. I wish I had been more angry in that situation. And he starts shaking his head at me like in disgust. And it hit me, oh, oh, I see what happened. You thought maybe I had learned my lesson and I regretted this whole thing. No, no way. I learned that I had let too much pass before I decided to act in this situation. And in hindsight, I wish I had gone faster, stronger, and harder, and had been more direct in the things that I had dealt with. Not because it was easy, not because I was just angry, but because I knew that I had taken it at my own pace of comfortability, and that became a problem. And there were per people hurting on the other side of this. Now, here, here's a question I want us to all consider. Because have you not seen a young person go rogue at a job place? Of course. Like, that's the idea. Like, you've got to learn your boundaries. You're, like, coming into levels of maturity. Have you not seen the young guy who's sitting around a circle, the young person who is coming up and is showing lots of promise and possibility that they could be the next person to carry the torch? Have you not been around that situation where then they take it too far out of zeal and actually need to be put in their place? So how did I know I wasn't that guy in this situation? And I'm going to give you a few reasons why. I told this story before, so I'm going to keep it very short, but a few months before I was in these situations, I was in a situation in a class where a guy named Roosevelt, he's a black pastor in the area of Phoenix, he, uh, I was asking the class, pray for me, I feel like this is getting too intense, I, I, like I need to back out, this is just like, I don't know what to do next in this situation, but it's really becoming difficult to be the person in this place speaking like this and causing all of these issues, right? And it was like, oh yeah, we'll pray for you, we'll pray for you. And then he, at the end of the prayer, looks up at me and says, hey, can I speak to your situation real quick? I'm like, yeah, man, sure. And he just quietly says, and you've heard this before, again, I'll make it quick. My, my son wakes up in the morning and he's black. And when my son brushes his teeth and he looks at himself in the mirror, he's black. When my son goes out on these streets, he's black. And if you're telling me that my son would not feel comfortable in his own skin at your church, you tell me if you have the option to get out of it. 
Had that not happened, I don't know what kind of courage, bravery, tenacity I would have example, put, put up in front of me in these situations. And so, so you might say, okay, that's very anecdotal, man. It is anecdotal. Um, so I'm going to take it into maybe a little bit further. Uh, I want you to see the tendency of institutions like ours to slow down. Professor Peter Chaw, he's a professor of church culture and society at the Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And there's this really cool continuum. You're not going to see the details if you want it. Carter, you want to throw that up there? Oh, no. There we go. I want you to see these six categories. The top says the club institution, the compliance institution, the affirmative institution, the redefining institution, the transformative institution. Obviously, the goal is to be the transformative institution. And as I was sitting with someone here who was trying to help us make some movement in this area at our church, he gauged that in fall of 2017, we were the compliance institution. You see that little marker? That's literally his handwriting. And he sat under... Peter T. Shaw as he gave an entire workshop on this. And this was really helpful for me to see the different uh, you know, aspects and different qualifiers of what makes somebody one or the other. But what I want you to see, the most important thing I want you to see is at the very bottom you see that handwritten note that says this, most violent to critiques. That's him quoting Peter Shaw. Because when an institution like ours goes down this route, like, we, don't, we, don't, we, we want to deal with this. We don't want to ignore it. We, we want to have a diverse, we want to have a multi-ethnic church. We have a di- well, well, maybe we need to think different. Like, we start to think, like, I want God's kingdom and the diversity of Revelation 7, 9. But once you get a little bit of ground behind you, you start to think you've arrived. Once you get some success behind you, made some milestones, you can look back and say, well, we've gone this far, we've gone this far. You want to relax a little bit. You want to say, hey, we, we, we're, we'll point at the worst case scenario and say, we're not like them. We, we don't, we're not that. We, we've got a little bit further to go. And this is where you can accidentally, as an institution, get caught up in starting to say, I'm not going any further. I've done enough. That's institutionally true of people who go down this route. And I would say we are at high risk for that possibility. Institutionally, right? Okay, so, so we've gone a little bit academic. I'm going to pull you back two more moments. You say, we just need to slow down. Movement like this takes time. And I'm going to read to you from MLK's letter to the Birmingham jail. First, I must confess that over the last few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion uh, that our great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizens counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to, quote, order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is a presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I can't agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically feels they can set the timetable for another person's freedom, who lives by the myth of time, and who constantly advises 
us to wait until a more convenient season. A shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. And then he goes biblical on us and says, lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. I'm, I'm, I'm coming to you from the testimony of, an, of my own experience. I'm coming to you from the testimony of the academic. Now I'm coming to you from the testimony of God's prophet who says, don't slow down, turn it up. Don't slow down, turn it up. I have one more. Can you stick with me through one more? You say, well, the worst is over, right? We, racism is, is done. There's, there's this post that constantly comes back in my mind by Professor Dr. Jamar Tisby. He says, when racism isn't stopped, it always leads to violence. And just when you want to second guess that, we see George Floyd's name added to a myriad of black and brown folks who have been killed due to racism in our country, and it hasn't stopped from there. We see the insurrection of January 6th give credibility to lots of, uh, um, uh, and by credibility, I mean false credibility. Don't hear me wrong there. To use biblical symbols, appropriate them, for their own gain and own ability to move forward. So, so there's the testimony of the prophet. There's the testimony of me as your pastor. There is the testimony of the academic. There is the testimony of the blood of our brothers and sisters speaking up from the ground saying, do not slow down. Turn it up. And praise God, I left my conversation with that man and two weeks later landed at Common Ground Northeast. And God surrounded us by a community of witnesses who said, you're not crazy. You sit in that environment long enough and you will think that. It's the definition of gaslighting. We're here to turn it up. And then we put Revelation 7, 9 in front of us because it's not just hard things that we're having to get through. It is the joy of what could be true sitting in front of us. It's not just the push away from something that we're working out of ourselves. I'm speaking to the white community in that moment. It's not just that. It is the draw for what could become that even as we walk out these doors and you see the words welcome in multiple different languages, that is the kaleidoscope of a diverse kingdom that we get to move towards let that draw you forward okay so we passed a point of no return y'all we're known for this <laughs> we've grown in this we have grown through this we have lost people for this to be at common ground northeast is to be about the values that we've talked about but it's also to say i'm not going to turn back so we're in this phase where we get to deal with that temptation or get past it and say retreat is not an option we're moving towards something that we believe God has called us to do and so in the words of your pastor don't slow down turn it up in the words of Moses don't be afraid stand your ground and you will see what the Lord will do let me pray this over us so father as we begin 2023 and we start to think of all the things that we've accomplished as a community, all the things that we've gone through, lost, gained. Father, we still want to find a way to make this place not just safe for, but comfortable for 
any person of color who would come in here and see themselves and find their voice and be a part of the community that's happening here, Lord. So whatever it takes to decenter that which stops it from happening, God, do that. Help us to turn it up, God. Help us to move forward. Help us to want to jump into new depths on this, God. It's, it's, it's so encompassing that it redefines your theology at times as you have to understand the scriptures in light of where we have been over the last few years, accommodations of mostly white suburban preferences. So scramble whatever image of heaven I had and give me the image that you actually, the accurate image of the kingdom of God, Lord. And could we see it be incarnated in this room and amongst our people? Put to death whatever needs to die so that we can live. And Father, the richness of that. We're gonna know, know new, uh, new levels of who you are because we're seeing perspectives that we hadn't heard. We're gonna see uh, uh, flavors that we hadn't tasted. We're gonna see pictures and visions that we hadn't gotten just by being just white or just black or just brown communities. So let the gift of seven nine draw us forward. Revelation seven nine draws forward. We ask for this right now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen.